You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, it is our desire that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to your word and open up your word to us that we may behold in it wonderful things, that you would use your word to incline in us a hunger for truth and a love for Christ and and the desire to obey. May your word sanctify us today by the truth and may your spirit teach us this morning to the glory of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. The last night in the life of our Lord Jesus was a busy one. He had a final meal with the disciples on that evening before he was crucified. He washed their feet. He dismissed Judas from the group. And then he gave his disciples an extended discourse, which we looked at in chapters 14 through 16. Then he walked through the city of Jerusalem on his way, headed outside of the city. And he stopped at some point and prayed for the disciples in John chapter 17. He left the city, went into the garden. He took three of the disciples even further into the garden with him and commanded them to pray. And he went in and he prayed to the Father. And uh, then he came out from there and met Judas, who was uh, already in the process of betraying him. And all of those events that we have looked at in these last several months in verses 13 through or chapters 13 through 17, all of those events are piled on top of what would have already been a very busy and full day of Passover week. And just the events of that day, ordinarily, even without all the stuff listed at the end of that day that I just gave you, even just a normal day of Passover week would have been enough activity and enough busyness to exhaust even the most vigorous of men, which explains why it is that Peter, James, and John could not keep watch with him for even an hour in the garden, but they fell asleep. These were robust, healthy, uh, vigorous fishermen, and they were exhausted by what? By all of the activity of that day. And then when Judas showed up with the crowd to arrest the Lord Jesus, that started a a series of events that would afford to Jesus little, if any, sleep through the course of that night. And all of the trials that took place took place not during broad daylight, but over the course and through the nighttime. And in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to give you probably a timeline, a suggested timeline. We don't know for sure because none of the gospel writers give us an exact time. But I'm going to give you a suggested timeline for some of these events. Today we're going to be looking at the trials of the Lord Jesus and the denials of the Apostle Peter, the trials and denials of Christ. And so we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Remember in verse 1 through 11, uh, Judas showed up in the garden to arrest Jesus. John skips over the prayer of Jesus regarding the cup that was before him and, and allowing that to pass. And so John records to us what happened when Judas showed up. Judas arrived and he betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss, immediately indicating who it was that the crowd was there to arrest. And Jesus, in a display of his sovereignty and his divine power, when he declared that he was, he said, I am, uh, when he said that to the officers who had come to arrest him, they were pushed back and, and bowled over, as it were, to the ground, rendered uh, completely incapable of doing anything, powerless. And that was a display of his sovereignty. And then in the arrest and in all things that followed, it is an evidence to us, and all that all that is here is an evidence to us of his complete surrender of himself, self-surrender into their hands. He was going forth not as a victim of these events, not as one caught up in circumstances that were outside of his control. He was going into their hands. He was going into these events as one who was voluntarily giving himself under the into their power. 
And that's what verses 1 to 11 is intended to show us. That he would voluntarily drink the cup that the Father had given to him, which was the cup of the Father's wrath on behalf of his people. He would die as a sacrifice as the shepherd for his sheep. He would die on their behalf. So that brings us to verses 12 through 18. And uh, we're going to be looking just at verse 12 to 18 today, and Lord willing, next week, at the second half of these trials and denials of the Lord Jesus. And then we get into the, the Christmas season, and I'm not sure uh, what we're going to do on, on the 20th of December or Christmas Eve, or uh, I think Justin is preaching on the 27th, but then we'll be back in John after the first of the year. So this week, the trials, and, and next week we'll finish up the second part of the trials. I want you to notice that longer section that I gave to you or that we read together at the beginning of the service, verses 12 through verse 27. That longer section has kind of a, a John uses a, a, a narrative device here where he switches from focusing on Jesus to focusing on Peter. Did you notice how John did that in changing the scene back and forth? You'll notice in verses 12 through 14, Jesus is being arrested. And then John switches the focus to Peter, verses 15 to 18. That's his first denial. And then back to Jesus being questioned in verses 19 to 24. And then back to Peter's second denial, verses 25 to 27. And then back to Peter as he, as, uh, or then back to Jesus as he is taken off to see Pilate. So John is intentionally switching from Jesus to Peter, to Jesus to Peter, and then back to Jesus again. Why does John do that? It seems intentional, uh, done intentionally in order to contrast Jesus and Peter. And, and oftentimes in Scripture, authors will do this. They will switch from one scene to the other back and forth in order to contrast these two events. And that is what I think John is doing here with Jesus and Peter. In Jesus, we see somebody who was standing before the highest Jewish authority in the land, and he was calm, cool, and collected. And then you see Peter, who cowers and expresses his fear before a servant girl. We see Jesus, who in the midst of this threat upon his life, he is completely faithful and completely obedient to the Father. And then we see Peter, who, in the face of really no threat whatsoever to his life, falls into cowardice. We see Christ being courageous in these circumstances, and Peter in the very same courtyard being completely cowardly. And it seems as if it is John's intention to contrast those two responses. We see the faithfulness of Christ contrasted with the fecklessness and the faithlessness of the Apostle Peter. And I don't want to be too hard on the Apostle Peter. We're going to get to that at the end, how we should view what Peter did. Um, and, and I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm just trying to rag on Peter as if he's a, my, my whipping boy today. That's not the intention whatsoever. But we, there are certain lessons that we can learn from Peter, and we're going to, we're going to look at some of those today. The second thing I want you to notice about this whole, uh, the whole structure of this context is how um, John puts some space between the first denial of Peter and his second and third denials. You'll notice that in verses 15 to 18, Peter's first denial, and then John switches to the trial that Jesus was uh, facing, and then back to Peter again, and there's a little bit of a break between those. In the synoptics, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just give all three of, the, uh, all three of Peter's denials back to back, as if this was one conversation that it was just, do you know him? No. Do you know him? Do you, no. Are you sure you don't know him? No, I don't know him. And we get the sense from the synoptics that this all happened back to back. But John puts some space between it and allows us to see that these three denials and everything that was unfolding here took place over the course of probably a couple of hours. And, uh, and Peter's first denial was not back-to-back with his second and his third denial. And, and we'll get into why that is and why John does that and how the synoptics uh, differ a little bit or at least give us a bit of a different perspective. We'll get to that when we get to the Peter's second and third denial. I just want you to observe that here. So let's look, first of all, at the scene of this trial, the scene of the trial. This is going to be verses 12 through 14. So the Roman cohort 
and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. So remember, the cohort is there. That is the detachment of troops from the Romans. The Jewish temple police were there. That is the officers of the temple, as well as the chief priest, as well as some Pharisees, as well as the commander is there in verse 12. So you have this massive crowd that has come out to arrest Jesus. And John says that they arrested him and they bound him. Interestingly, that John is the only one of the gospel writers that notes that Jesus was bound when he was arrested. Uh, the other gospel writers don't mention that. It's not that it didn't happen according to them, but they don't mention it. John seems to mention, in fact, he seems to give us the indication that Jesus remained bound, at least through the Jewish trials, all the way through the end of verse 24. Because you'll notice in verse 24 that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus remained bound for this first trial before Annas. It was probably the customary way in which somebody was arrested. But the fact that John notes that Jesus was bound by his captors, there's something significant about that. It seems almost out of place in light of what we read in verses 1 to 11. Does it not seem out of place to you? It seems out of place to me that they would bind somebody who by his spoken word pushed them all to the ground and rendered them completely incapacitated. What does binding him do? What does binding him do? You keep him from moving his hands? So what? He could speak and turn all of you to dust if he wanted to. And you're going to bind him. And, and when I read that this week, and I don't mean any irreverence by this whatsoever, I'm reminded of a, of, a, of a clip that I saw in a Superman movie where they had Superman in chains inside of a military facility. And when he wanted to, he simply broke the chains. It was no big deal. That, that is the same with the Lord Jesus. If he wanted to, he could turn these shackles to bread if he wanted to do that. He could turn them to flax or straw. He could simply break out of that. It was his spoken word that rendered them incapacitated. And yet they bound them. Bound him. The binding of him seems, uh, seems to indicate something, and that is that it is indicative to us of just how much Jesus willingly submitted himself to them. He could have gone along, but he allowed them to bind him. And as a reminder to us again that everything that is unfolding, he is allowing to happen, and he is completely handing himself over into their hands to do with him as they please, all under his sovereign control. So he allowed himself to be bound. And there seems to be some significance to that also uh, in the sense that in the Old Testament, certain sacrifices were bound to the altar. And it may be that John's references to Jesus being bound as the Lamb of God, since John is the one who calls him that so frequently in his writings, it may be that John is trying to recall to our mind that imagery of a sacrifice being bound to the altar. As in Psalm 118, verse 27, The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. It might also call to our remembrance the fact that Abraham, when he offered up Isaac, what did he do with Isaac? He bound him and placed him onto the altar, right? So the imagery of Jesus being bound and going with them would call to a Jewish mind all of that imagery. Abraham binding his son, placing him on sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices being bound to the horns of the altar. And there's a certain irony here in the fact that Jesus was bound as well. The irony being that this one who had set his people free ended up being bound as part of that process. He allowed himself to be bound so that he could set us free. That's some irony there in John 18. Now, look at verse uh, 12, the end of verse 12. They arrested Jesus and they bound him and then led him to Annas first. Uh, so first is the arrest and then second, he comes before the authorities. And I said when I was giving you overview of verse, uh, chapters 18 through 21 that there were five trials of the Lord Jesus. And I, I told you when I did that that I reserved the right upon further study to correct anything that I was about to say. As it turns out, I don't think I need to correct anything that I was about to say. There were, in fact, five trials, though there was probably six official stages to these five trials. 
The first trial is before Annas. John mentions that. They led him to Annas first. And then verse 24, John mentions the second trial, which is Caiaphas. Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then there was a third trial before Pilate, which all four of the gospel records record. And then there is a trial before Herod, which only Luke records. And then there was a second trial before Pilate. So he goes from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod to Pilate again. And then he is crucified. And all of this takes place somewhere between uh, 12 o'clock at night, 1130, 12 o'clock at night, and 5 a.m. or sunrise the next morning. Because they were at Pilate's door first thing. So all of these trials, the Jewish side of the trials before Annas and Caiaphas, they take place over the course of the night. And then the trials before Pilate, very early first thing in the morning. So this is a very restless and sleepless night, as you can imagine, that Jesus would have endured. Okay, so the first trial is before Annas. And here's what's significant about this. None of the other gospel writers mentioned the trial before Annas. John gives us that. He says that Jesus was brought before Annas first. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they skip over this trial, don't even mention it. They focus in on the second trial, which was before Caiaphas. And we're going to get into, I think, who who Caiaphas and Annas were here in just a second. The fact that John doesn't give us any details of the trial before Caiaphas, he mentions it in verse 24, that Annas led him to Caiaphas bound, but John doesn't tell us what the trial was about, what was said at the trial, or even what the outcome of the trial was. He doesn't mention anything about that second trial. But he does focus in on this on the first trial. Why does John do that? It's an indicator to us that John was familiar with the other three gospel writers, and he knew that his audience would be familiar with the other three gospel writers as well. And John knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for whatever their reasons were, did not mention the trial before Annas, but they focused on the trial before Caiaphas. And John then zeroes in on what he knew Matthew, Mark, and Luke left out, and that is the trial before Annas. Why didn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention the trial before Annas, but instead focus on the trial before Caiaphas? I think it was for this reason. Caiaphas was the high priest, Annas was not. And you see that in verse 13. He led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Jesus standing before Annas, Annas as, as not the reigning high priest, but only a figurehead, he could do nothing official on behalf of Jesus. He could, he could issue no official decree, he could oversee no official trial, he could have no official condemnation of guilt. The other gospel writers, I think, don't mention Annas because what they're zeroing in on is the legal aspects of what happened with Jesus before Caiaphas. And so they skip over Annas to get to the heart of that. John gives us what happened before Annas. So this becomes a trial, or a, a, really a tale of two men, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, both of these men play, play prominently in the New Testament, in the Gospel records, in John specifically, but in the Gospel records, all of them, and in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Because as Peter and John and the other apostles went out to preach, they met with opposition, and guess who was leading the opposition? To the apostles, the same men who led the opposition to Jesus Christ, Annas and Caiaphas. So it's good that we get to know who Annas is and who Caiaphas is. So let me give you some details about who this man named Annas was. He was the high priest for the nation of Israel between A.D. 6 and A.D. 15. He had served as high priest. Annas was uh, deposed, or he was removed from the priesthood by... Valerius Gratus, who was Pilate's predecessor. Now, according to the Old Testament, high priests were to serve until they died. So they were appointed for life and they were to serve until they died. But under Rome's jurisdiction, since Rome ruled over the nation of Israel, Rome appointed people who were in positions of power in the nation of Israel. And so once the Romans took over the land and began appointing high priests, there was virtually a revolving door on the high priesthood. The number of men who served as high priests, most of them serving for only a couple of years, uh, Rome kept them going through there. Why? Because if you had 
power for too long, you could become corrupt. I know it's hard for you to imagine a scenario in which people who have power for a long time can become corrupt, but it does happen in other nations around the world. And this happened in the nation of Israel. And people who held that position of power could become corrupt and could become powerful. And Rome didn't want that. Rome didn't want powerful men in positions in their little districts around their empire. So they would keep this revolving door on the high priesthood and appoint men in and out of that position. So that Annas had served from 6 to 15. Now, Annas was really the highest Jewish hierarch of the of the of the whole nation. He was the highest man. He probably wielded the most power of anybody in the nation. Annas, not only did Annas serve as high priest over the nation of Israel, but he had five of his sons, one of his grandsons and his son-in-law, who also all served as a high priest. Five of his sons, one of his grandsons and his son-in-law. His son-in-law was Caiaphas. And if it weren't for John's note here, we would have no idea what the relationship between Caiaphas and Annas was. But John tells us that Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. Now, that's power, isn't it? That you could have six members of your immediate blood family serve as high priest and one of your son-in-laws serve as high priest. Who do you think the granddaddy of this crime family, sorry, priestly family was? It was Annas. And he was corrupt. And to give you some idea of just how corrupt these men were, Caiaphas served as high priest from the year 18 A.D., to the year 36 A.D. That was one of the longest for a couple of centuries. That was one of the longest tenures of any high priest in the nation of Israel for a couple of centuries on either side of that. Why is that? Because Caiaphas was a ruthless, murderous, bloodthirsty, corrupt, wicked, covetous, greedy, and I've run out of adjectives, individual. That was Caiaphas. And the fact that he held that position for so long gives you some idea of the amount of power and influence that Caiaphas and Annas wielded together. Now, there's an interesting notation in Luke chapter 2, is it Luke 2? Luke 3, verse 2, um, regarding when John the Baptist started serving. Luke says that John the Baptist started serving or started ministering during the reign of the high priest of Caiaphas and Annas. And Luke mentions both of them. And here's what went on with the high priest and his family. Once you served as a high priest, you were always referred to and called a high priest. We do the same thing today with the office of president. Right. We still refer to President Carter, President Clinton. Uh, we refer to presidents who have passed out of office. We still call them president. We don't call them ex-presidents or past presidents. We still refer to them as president. It was the same thing with the high priest. Once you were a high priest, you were always referred to as the high priest, which is why. Look at verse 19. John refers to Annas as the high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. That's Annas. So John calls Annas the high priest in verse 19. And he calls Annas the high priest in verse 22. And yet he says in verse 13 that Caiaphas was high priest that year and not Annas. So is that a contradiction? No, it's not, because he's he's making us know that even though Annas had served as high priest, they still called him the high priest. And remember, Annas was deposed or t- removed from office by the Roman governor that, that uh, was the predecessor to Pilate. Jews did not like that. And there were probably a number of Jews who always looked to Annas as being the genuine real high priest because Annas had served there. And when the Romans came in and said, no, we're taking you out of office, a lot of the Jews would have said, no, Annas is, Annas is our high priest. We don't recognize Caiaphas. There would have been a remnant of faithful sort of legalistic Jews who would have said, no matter what the Romans say, Annas is the high priest and not Caiaphas. Much like today, I say, Reagan is my president. I don't care who holds the office today, Reagan's my president. He might be dead. He might be dead for 100 years. Reagan is my president. Same thing with people who respected Caiaphas, uh, Annas, in Annas's day. He was the one who held the power. Not only did he hold the power, but 
Annas received a tremendous amount of income off of the, all of the exchanges that went on in the courtyard of the temple. So Annas received, in fact, he, he received so much money off of the income from the temple that the outer court of the temple where they bought and sold animals during Passover week and exchanged money at the tables, that was referred to as the Bazaar of Annas, according to Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And it was sort of his business that went on in the temple courtyard. You get an idea of the corruption? Now, since you know that much of Annas's income came from what went on outside in the temple courtyard, can you understand how Annas would have felt about the Lord Jesus, who we know at least twice overturned the tables and drove the money changers out of the temple? Do you think Annas had an axe to grind? Yeah, like a Viking blacksmith, he had an axe to grind. And he wanted Jesus dead, and he planned it, and he was plotting it for quite some time. So this is the corruption. This is the, the, the family intrigue here. That's Annas. Um, now, why does John note, why do you think that Jesus went to Annas first? Let me give you a couple, of, a couple of things that might explain why he went to Annas first. Some have suggested that it would have been Annas that Judas would have struck a deal with. And so when Judas brought Jesus back after the arrest, he would have taken Judas, Judas would have taken Jesus first to Annas in order to deliver the bounty and to receive the payment for that. You can imagine what that scene would look like. Walking in with the temple police, bringing Jesus bound right into Annas' residence. And with Jesus present, receiving the money, delivering Jesus, and then Judas walking out of that. That's probably why he went to Annas first. Second, it has been suggested that probably Annas wanted his own little personal moment of victory and triumph over this one who on at least two different occasions had run money changers out of the temple. This would have been Annas' opportunity to triumph over Jesus. Even though he could do nothing official, Annas would have wanted to see this himself and to try him, which, which he did. And there's a third reason why they might have brought him to Annas first, and that is that his time with Annas would have given Caiaphas enough time to gather together the Sanhedrin and all the leadership of the Jews for the meeting of the Sanhedrin and the council, which would officially try Jesus in probably an hour's worth of time. So they would have, Judas would have showed up. They would have inked the deal with Judas. They would have made the bargain. Judas would have went out. And during this whole process, they would be running to gather up at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, all of the high priests, all of the Sanhedrin members to gather together the council so that they could put Jesus on trial during the course of the night. Now, what about Caiaphas? Well, Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law, and most notable for John in this context is verse 14. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now, you might not remember this, but this was from back in chapter 11, and you can turn back there. We're going to read just a little portion of chapter 11 to you, because John is referring back to something he's already told us. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what was the fear of the Jewish leadership? That if they allowed Jesus to continue doing signs, Many people were going to believe in him. They were going to believe that he was the Messiah, and they would expect him to set up the kingdom. And that this Jesus might gain enough followers to lead a revolt. And if he does that, Rome is going to come in and is going to crush the nation. Destroy their temple, wipe out their priesthood, kill all the Jews, and, and just destroy them in their power structure in a show of force to keep their power together. That was the fear. So verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you 
that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So what was Caiaphas's very pragmatic suggestion? We kill Jesus. We keep him from leading a revolt, which keeps the Romans at bay. Very simple equation. So we need to kill Jesus. Now, John notes, verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, John looked at Caiaphas's words and he said Caiaphas was not just speaking what was on his heart, though that is true. But God spoke through Caiaphas like God spoke through Balaam, another wicked man. God spoke through him to to give a description of his will a prophecy, as it were, of the extent and the nature and the purpose of Christ's death. It would be for the nation, but yes, not for the nation, only the Jews, but that he might gather together all the sheep of the great shepherd into one, that he might die for all of them, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles and all who will believe upon him. John saw in Caiaphas' words a description of that aspect of the death of Christ. So verse 53, so from that day they planned together to kill him. From that day they planned together to kill him. That is Caiaphas and Annas and the high priest and the entire Sanhedrin. Well, I shouldn't say the entire Sanhedrin because if Nicodemus was on there and Joseph of Arimathea was on there, then it wouldn't be every member of the Sanhedrin. But as a body, that was their intention to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does John mention that detail and remind us of that back in chapter 18 in verse 14? Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Why does John remind us of that? John is trying to show us just how rigged this trial was. When the man leading the trial, leading the Sanhedrin, the highest power in the land, has already purposed your death, decided that you are guilty, planned your death, and is moving toward it, do you think you're going to get a fair trial? Not in the least. And this is John's way of reminding us that Caiaphas, the one at the head of all of this, and Annas, these men had already determined to put him to death. And so we go into the trials realizing ahead of time this was their intention. They're not giving him a fair trial. Now let's look at the scene of the denial. Looked at the trial. Now let's look at the denial. Beginning in verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entering, entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Now it says here that Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Uh, Peter was following Jesus. Now if you read the synoptics, the first three Gospels, you see that all of them record that the disciples fled. But John records that Peter was following. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. You can imagine how this would happen. It is dark, it is in the garden, and after Peter uh, took off Malchus's ear and Jesus healed that and said, put away your sword. And the, the arrest started and the soldiers came forward and Jesus was delivering himself into their hands. You can imagine what the disciples would do. They would realize this is a lost cause and they would flee like a bunch of cockroaches when the lights comes on. They would just take off in all directions. But after a period of time when he was arrested, the crowd left the garden and began to make their way back into the city of Jerusalem. Peter, I can well imagine, would have enough love in his heart for his master, for his Lord, that he would want to see what was going on. And it would be easy in a crowd of 250 people or more who had come out to arrest him. It would be quite easy to make your way into the fringes of that crowd or into the back of that crowd and just follow them along. You flip your hoodie up over your head. You put on your sunglasses. You put your hands in your pocket and you kind of walk along like you're about ready to do a drug deal or whatever it is. You just make your way with the crowd right in all the way up to the residence of the high priest. And now, everything that is about to unfold in this trial and in Caiaphas's trial takes place somewhere attached to the courtyard that is mentioned in these verses. 
Now, some have observed that we have a trial before Annas and the gospel writers record a trial before Caiaphas. Annas, in verse 24, led Jesus away to Caiaphas, bound for his trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And yet Peter was in the same courtyard the whole time and he was with Jesus for the trial before Annas and he was with Jesus for the trial before Caiaphas. How is that possible? That Peter would be there for both trials and never move. And yet Jesus moves from one trial to the other. Some people see that as a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction because it is in all likelihood that Annas and Caiaphas shared a massive high priestly residence that belonged to that entire family and that this high priestly residence had a courtyard and that that courtyard was attached to the proceedings of the Sanhedrin and that the Sanhedrin would have come there to the location of the high priest's house to have their uh, have their trial there. And Peter was there in the courtyard for the trial before Annas and the trial before Caiaphas. Um, even more possibly, Annas and Caiaphas had two separate distinct residences that shared a common courtyard. That would have been very typical in that time. So that's how Peter was at both locations. So now the trial before the trial before uh, Annas. Verse 15, Peter's following along, and so was now another disciple. Now you notice throughout the text that the other disciple or another disciple, he is not named. He's mentioned in verse 15. Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So as the crowd got there, some of them went inside. Peter wasn't recognized by anybody who was guarding the courtyard of the high priest and his residence. And so Peter had to hang out outside of that. But this other disciple was known to the high priest. And so this other disciple was allowed entrance into the courtyard. And then he realized that Peter was not there with him. So he went out and he talked to the servant girl. And the servant girl then, uh, by virtue of the fact that this man, this other disciple, was known to the high priest, the servant girl let Peter into the courtyard where Peter would stay for the rest of the evening uh, to watch all of these trials, along with this other disciple. So now we have to ask, what? Who is this other disciple? He's not named anywhere in the text. Who is the one who is called the other disciple? Let me give you some clues. And this is where you've got to put on your Columbo hat, as it were. Some of you are really going to enjoy this. Some of you are going to want to fall asleep during all of this. But we're going to put together a few clues to figure out who is this other disciple. This other disciple is also mentioned in John chapter 20. So flip over there real quick. There's four verses there that speak of him. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 8. This is, happens after the resurrection at the tomb. Chapter 20, verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Verse eight. So the other disciple who had come first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. Is there something in that text in those verses that might indicate to us who the other disciple is? He's identified as somebody else. Did you catch it? In verse three, he's the disciple, the other disciple, whom Jesus loved. Who is the disciple whom Jesus loved? That's not the first time that we've read that in the Gospel of John. We read that throughout the Gospel of John. John refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And all of the evidence indicates, as we talked about in the introduction to this Gospel, that that is John, the author of this Gospel, John the Apostle. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. John never names himself in this Gospel, even though in the events where the other Gospel writers also describe the same events that John does, the other disciples describe uh, those events and John being a prominent figure, but John never mentions himself in connection by name in any of those events, always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So the other disciple is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved is John. Well, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's a mathematical law, I think, of some sort. Then the disciple, the other disciple is 
John, the author of this gospel, which means that John was an eyewitness of all of these trials that unfolded there that evening. But here's the other perplexing thing. Back in chapter 18 now, back in chapter 18, twice John mentions of himself that he was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. That's in verse 15. And in verse 16, um, he mentions it again. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper. Now, how is it that John was known to the high priest and to his family? And here's what's interesting. The word know there, um, the word know there refers to and not just a, in a mere acquaintance or like I know who you were, I know of you, I know your name, or I've heard of you, but an intimate connection, possibly a kinship or a family relationship. Leon Morris in his commentary says this, it is now generally recognized that gnostos implies something more than mere acquaintance. It means that the person so described was a member of the high priest's circle, possibly a kinsman and himself of priestly birth, or at any rate, one who stood in intimate relations with the governing high priest's family. That's John. Intimately connected with the high priest and with his family. Now, how is it that John, the son of Zebedee, a Galilean fisherman, would be intimately known and connected with the high priest and with the high priest's family. This is intriguing, isn't it? Let me give you some clues. None of these clues are going to be proof positive of anything. And I'm going to build a circumstantial case. Okay? Build a circumstantial case. We know that John knew the high priest's family intimately, not from anything that I'm about to give you from history, but from the text of Scripture. That ultimately is what determines it. I don't need to prove this from outside, I prove it because it is written, so it is true. But here's how this might have happened or how this might have been the case. All right, here's connect all these dots with me. Follow me. John's mother's name was Salome. I'll give you two references. If you're writing this down, and you want to follow this later. Matthew 27, verse 56 and Mark 15, verse 40. John's mother's name was Salome. John's mother, Salome, was a sister of Jesus's mother, Mary. John 19, verse 25 and Mark 15, verse 40. Mary and Salome were sisters, which means that John, the son of Zebedee, was a cousin to Jesus because Mary and Salome were sisters. Keep that in mind. Now, Mary was also related to another prominent female in Scripture. Her name was Elizabeth. Read about her in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, that she was of the daughters of Aaron, meaning that she was of priestly descent, probably through her mother. She was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in some way, we don't know, maybe a distant cousin or a second cousin. Um, and her husband was a priest, Zechariah, and she was the mother of John the Baptist. So you have John the Baptist, John the son of Zebedee, and Jesus, who are all related in this picture. They all know each other. They are related. John the disciple and Jesus are cousins through Mary and Salome. And if Mary is related, and so would Salome be, to Elizabeth, who was of the daughters of Aaron, it is very possible that Mary and Salome were also of priestly descent through their mother, just as Elizabeth was likely through her mother. Now, there is no single verse of Scripture that says that Mary was of priestly descent. But we know that she was related to somebody who most definitely was of priestly descent. In which case, Elizabeth, Mary, and Salome all were of a priestly family, which would indicate to us that John could very well have been among a very prominent priestly family. Now, that's the testimony of Scripture. It connects some dots, but doesn't say anything for certain. Then we have a little bit of a glimpse into this from early church history. 
a man by the name of Polycrates stated, and, and he was a second century bishop in the city of Ephesus. John, the author, served as an elder in the city of Ephesus toward the end of the first century. Um, Polycrates was born in 130, meaning that he was probably knew somebody who knew John. Polycrates states in a letter that John had been a priest before he met Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? But we know John is a fisherman, is the son of Zebedee. So here's another possible tie to the high priest's house. Fishermen in that day and age were not not common, uh, you know, lowlifes or, or the bottom of the economic scale at all. Fishermen were the entrepreneurs. They were the men of industry. They were the men of means. We know from history that there was a, a pretty substantial fish trade that went on between the northern part of the nation and the southern part of the nation. And we know that John's father, Zebedee, had a fishing industry large enough to employ a number of servants and that John worked for his father in this fishing industry. Now, according to a apocryphal book called the Gospel of Hebrews, it's not biblical, it's not inspired, but there's a statement in the book, the Gospel of Hebrews, that indicates that John used to deliver fish to the house of the high priest. Okay, so those are all some possible connections. What do we know for certain? John was very well known to Caiaphas and Annas. So much so that John could gain entrance to the courtyard of the high priest's home by just walking past the servant girl. And he was so well known that John himself could walk up to the servant girl and vouch for Peter. And she, by John's testimony alone, would let Peter into the courtyard. That's a significant connection. So this other disciple is none other than John himself. Now, let's look at Peter's denial. Peter's denial. Look at verse 17. The slave girl. So John, the apostle, John, the disciple, went out to get Peter, the slave girl. And oh, by the way, the, the presence of the slave girl is an indication that this did not happen inside the temple. They didn't allow women to keep the doors at the temple. They would, but they, she would probably keep the door at a private residence. So this is a private residence and not the temple. So the slave girl let Peter in. And as she is letting Peter in, she recognizes him as being one of John's friends. Verse 17, the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, this is a slave girl who is asking this. And when she says, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? That indicates that she knew something. What is it? She knew John and she knew that John was what? One of this man's disciples. And so when John came to the front door and vouched for Peter and said, let him in and Peter came in. She would have said, are you one of his disciples like John is one of his disciples? In other words, the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas, and even the slave girl in Caiaphas and Annas' house knew that John was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And so John is there. He is known by the high priest. He let Peter in. Peter came in. And the very first question he is asked, and it's asked in kind of a negative, uh, expecting a negative answer. It's one of those questions that when you ask it, it sort of implies that you're expecting a negative answer to the question. You didn't beat your wife last night, did you? I mean, you expect a no to that, right? Certainly you didn't go there, did you? And that's, how, that's the sense in which Peter's asked this question. You're not also one of his disciples, are you? And the, and the premise of the question is, certainly you are not. Just affirm to me that you are not one of his disciples. And since the question was presented in that way, it became very easy for Peter to simply deny what she expected him to deny. Or for Peter to affirm what she expected him to affirm. That is, that he was not one of his disciples. And so Peter denied it. And he said, I am not. And by the way, one of the reasons that I think John doesn't name himself in this context is his humility. Because John was in the very same location for the very same people in the very same circumstances. And there's no indication that he ever denied that he knew Christ or was one of his disciples. But Peter did. And Peter was there that night in the very same courtyard, in the very same circumstances. And Peter denied it. 
And if John were going to tell us about Peter's denial and put himself into the narrative as being the man who was known by the high priest and I'm right there as Jesus' disciple and never was ashamed and never was fearful at all, it would make John look pretty good, wouldn't it? To put himself up next to Peter like that. I think this was John's way of saying, I was there and I saw this. I got Peter into this and Peter fell without trying to make it look like he was trying to make himself look good. So that's Peter's denial. Verse 18. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. There's no record in any of Peter's denials that for the rest of this evening while he was standing there by the fire that he was anywhere near John. John kind of disappears from the narrative here. Peter becomes front and center. Peter, John went to the door and got Peter. Peter, when he came in, he denied Jesus. And what was the first thing he did? He went over and stood next to the fire. There's no record that he was with John. Why did Peter do that? Why did Peter leave John's presence? Think about it. If the servant girl recognized him as one of Jesus' disciples by the fact that he was with John, you think he's going to hang out with John for the rest of the night? No, it would be far safer to do what? To go over even amongst the officers. If he stays with John, he's going to be recognized for certain. So Peter instead leaves John and goes over and warms himself next to the fire. And there's no record that John did that. John was somewhere else in this courtyard or in the part of this proceedings. But Peter was warming himself by the fire. And here's something of an irony here. What Peter did, and this is the act of a coward, what Peter did is he went and he stood with the very enemies of our Lord around a fire. He could have stood next to John. And had he stood next to John, he would have been fine. He would have been fine. John was known to the high priest. There would have been no danger to Peter whatsoever. Really, there was no danger to Peter at any time during the course of this evening. But he didn't stay with John. Instead, he went and stood with the enemies of our Lord. And this is what a coward does. This is what a coward does. A coward always tries to, to blend into the enemies of our Lord. Keep your head low. Don't say anything that will make you stand out. Keep your faith to yourself. That's what Peter is doing. Rather than standing over with John as a disciple of the Lord, he walks over and he stands with the very people who only minutes earlier had arrested Jesus in the garden. There was another person who stood with the enemies of Jesus in the garden. Do you remember who it was? It was Judas. And now, irony of ironies, we find Peter doing the very same thing. Standing with the very people who had arrested his Lord. Why? Because he wants to blend in with those who hate his Lord, lest he be discovered. And that's what a cowardly Christian does. Tries to blend in with those who hate our Lord, lest they be discovered. We're not called to blend in. We're called to stand out. And we're called to stand up. Now, what do we learn from all of this? What do we learn from it? Let me give you a couple of things. We're going to return to Peter's second and third denials in a couple of weeks, down in verses 25 to 27. But what do we learn from Peter's denial? First, I think it's fair for us to say that we should not be too critical of Peter. We shouldn't be too critical of him. It's easy for us to sort of jump on Peter, and I can't tell you how many pages this last week I read of people who kind of like to pile on to Peter for what he did. Has not everybody in this room felt the, the pull, the fear of a coward's heart? Or am I the only one? We all know what it is, right? Every single one of us as a believer has a little bit of Simon Peter in our own hearts. We know what that feels like. We know the temptation there. So it is right to, to, to learn a lesson from Peter. It is right for us to observe what Peter did and say, we don't want to do this, and here are the steps that lead to this. But when we do so, we always have to say to ourselves, if I'm anywhere in this narrative, it's Peter. I'm not with John with the connections who knows the high priest and can hang out in a crowded place all by myself without any fear. I'm not John. I'm not Judas betraying the Lord openly for 30 pieces of silver. I'm not that guy. I'm not the people who would arrest him and bind him. I'm not Caiaphas. and I'm not Annas. You know who I am in this narrative? I'm the Apostle Peter. And I always have to remind myself, and so do you, 
that given the exact same circumstances, given the exact same weaknesses of that moment, every person in this room, I believe, has the potential to do exactly what Peter did. And some of us have been cowardly and fearful and denied the Lord under a lot less pressure than Peter ever faced this evening. So we learned a lesson from Peter, but let's not pile on um, and make him out to be the very essence of evil and the devil himself. There are warnings here. And I think if we do that, we have that approach. If we look at Peter's denial, then we can stand in heaven and shake his hand and say, hey, I didn't, I didn't miss you at all. I mean, you taught me a very important lesson in all that you went through. All right, so let's learn from Peter and not be critical of him. Second, you and I need to observe and remember that the weakness that is demonstrated by Peter here is the same weakness that resides in the heart of every genuine believer. It resides in the heart of every genuine believer. This is the Peter who at the beginning of this evening said to the Lord, where are you going? I'll go with you. I will lay down my life for you. John 13, 37. That was Peter. I will lay down my life for you. This is the same Peter who just minutes earlier pulled his sword and was willing to take on a Roman cohort. That Peter. And now he's standing before a servant girl. I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. It's the same Peter. We ought to be, we ought to be warned against boasting of our own strength too much. And this is exactly what Peter did. We, we far overestimate our own strength and we far underestimate our own weaknesses. And Peter is a warning to us that every person in this room, every person who reads this text, can fall prey to the very same weakness that Peter did. He was weak because he was not trusting in Christ. He was weak because he was not believing the promises. He was weak because of the circumstances. He was weak because he is a man made of dust, just as the rest of us are made of dust. And so this could be us. And the third thing we learn from Peter is that we ought not to stand when we think, or take, we ought to take heed when we think we stand lest we fall. That's 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Paul says, therefore him, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Peter is a warning to us. Just when we think we are strong and unable be tempted or to fall in such a way. That is the very moment at which we need to be most on guard against that very temptation and that very sin. That's the lesson that we learned from Peter. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious God, you are the one who keeps us from stumbling and falling and presents us faultless before your very own throne. That is your promise to all those who have trusted in you. And it is our desire that you may preserve us from sin, to keep us from temptation, only allow the trials and the testings that might prove the evidence of our faith to come upon your people. And we do not want to stumble or fall or dishonor your great name in any way. So we pray that you would preserve us from that and keep us from that to the glory of your own name when you present us faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. We look forward to that with, with great expectation. And may you hasten the day of that revealing. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.